Good morning, church. Please will you open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4 together, and I'm going to read verses 13 to 18. Thessalonians 4 from verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord." Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning with this exact hope that you would encourage us through your word. And so we pray for your power, Holy Spirit, to do exactly that. I pray, Lord, that through your word you will comfort those who are struggling with grief and facing bereavement. We pray that you would lift up your church and do your glorious work again as you do every week in the life of the church. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. The morning that my, my dad died, we were already packing, uh, getting ready to drive up to Joburg. I thought we were going to be there for a little while to help my mom keep it all together until my dad came out the woods. While packing, my phone rang, and it was my, my sister. She said, Beach, Dad's not doing well, and they told us to come to the hospital. My heart skipped a beat. I, I know what that means. Sheree's mom was with us at the time, and so she started immediately to pray with us. She was praying for a miracle, and then she said, But not our will be done, but yours be done. And 20 minutes later, I got another call from my sister. She said, We didn't make it in time. Dad's gone. And Sheree's mom said, How can this be your will? How can this be your will? In, time of, in times of great loss, when life is heavy with grief, it is hard to cling to the truth that what is happening to us is the will of God, and it's hard to cling to the truth that His will is good. This week, I found something. I stumbled across a, a blog post that I had saved, written by Tim Challies, a year ago when his own son died at 21. And in this blog post, he shares the words of Spurgeon. And Spurgeon says this. He writes, O death, why do you touch the tree beneath whose spreading branches weariness finds rest? Why do you snatch away the excellence of the earth 
in whom is all our delight. If you must use your axe, use it upon the trees that yield no fruit. Then you may be thanked. But why will you chop down the best trees? Hold your axe and spare the righteous. But no, it, it must not be. Death strikes the best of our friends, the most generous, the most prayerful, the most holy, the most devoted must die. And why? It is through Jesus' prevailing prayer. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. It is that which bears them on eagles' wings to heaven. Every time a believer moves from this earth to paradise, it is an answer to Christ's prayer. A good old divine remarks, Many times Jesus and his people pull against one another in prayer. You bend your knee in prayer and say, Father, I desire that your saints be with me where I am. And Christ says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. In this way, the disciple is at cross purposes with his Lord. The soul cannot be in both places. The beloved one cannot be with Christ and with you too. And Spurgeon goes on to say, what if you were in a room with Christ, in a room before the Father, and you knew that your will was pulling in opposition to Christ's? Surely, though it be agony, you would say, Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, you shall have them. By faith, we let them go. And while we are called to faith in times of bereavement, faith in the will of God and in the goodness of God, it does not mean that we deny the reality of grief. J. Adams, the great biblical counselor, defined grief as a life-shaking sorrow over loss. He said, grief tears life to shreds. It shakes one from top to bottom. It pulls a person loose. He comes apart at the seams. Grief is truly nothing less than a life-shattering loss. So when Paul says to us in 1 Thessalonians 4, do not grieve like others who have no hope, he is not saying, do not grieve. Grief is an appropriate response to death. Paul knew this to be true. In the book of Philippians in chapter 1, he's speaking of his own life. He says, for, for, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Saying, I can't choose between the two. It is my desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. And then in the very next chapter, he's speaking of Epaphroditus, his friend who was ill and who had almost died. He says, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul does not expect Christians to be indifferent about death or just to snap back. After a loss, grief is a reality that we must face, and some bereavements will last a lifetime. But in the middle of the darkest days of grief, there is hope and the possibility of peace and joy for the Christian. Paul writes to this Thessalonian church facing the loss of their loved ones in Christ. They are confused. 
And so he writes to correct and to comfort. And he says, your hope rests in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend at least two weeks, I believe, on Christ's coming. This is not all Paul says about it. And it's certainly not all. Uh, I can't say all about it today. But I, what I want to do today is follow Paul's intention in this passage. And let this passage speak to those who are grieving and prepare the hearts of all of us for grief. It is something we will all at one time or another face. We'll consider uh, that the sermon has three headings. In the first, I'll, I'll just unpack this passage, the hope that we have for those who have left us to be with the Lord. But I know today... And my heart was wrestling with it this week that our grief is sometimes bigger than this or different to this. Sometimes we lose loved ones who did not know the Lord. Sometimes our hopelessness is it's not for those who have left us, it's for those left behind. What hope is there for this life now after they're gone? And so we'll consider those two issues as well under headings two and three. Number one. The hope for those who lose believing loved ones. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And that's the atmosphere. At any funeral where the family has real confidence and faith that their loved one is with the Lord, that atmosphere is always different to a funeral where that confidence is absent. So we come to this passage and we we wonder, we ask, why is Paul writing this? What was their confusion? What is his concern for them in verse 13 when he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So their loved ones are dying in the Lord, and they seem to be grieving in a way that is similar to the world's grieving. Christians don't need to grieve like the world grieves. Paul regularly uses this phrase, I don't want you to be uninformed. Because when it comes to the theology that shapes the way that we live, ignorance is never bliss, as someone has said. Being uninformed can lead to confusion. It can lead to chaos in our times of grief. So for the sake of hope and joy and our peace when we lose people, we want to be informed. When my dad passed away, I remember being acutely consumed with thoughts about death, thoughts about heaven and hell. Grief gives rise to thoughts and to questions that you otherwise might not have. And that also comes with opportunity for doubt. And during those first few buffeting weeks, it was the truth of Scripture that anchored my heart. So let's go to that truth. What was their confusion? We're not entirely sure. I believe it's clear from this passage that their confusion was related to the state of their lost loved ones. They were worried about them for some reason. Look at verses 14 and 15. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we know Paul would have taught them something about the return of Christ. Remember, he was only with them for a few short weeks before he had to leave the city. 
He seems now intent on filling some gaps. And they seem concerned about their loved ones, perhaps in some way missing out on this great and glorious day of the Lord's return. Paul also would have taught them something very countercultural. Remember, the Greeks didn't place much stock in the, the physical. Now, Paul would have said to them, Christ is going to return, and he's going to return physically. He's coming in his glorified state. When we see him, we will be glorified as he is. And God's plan is to recreate the heavens and the earth, to restore and to redeem our future eternal state in heaven. It's a bodily experience. And as difficult culturally as that would have been for them to believe, they had perhaps set their hopes on it. But while they are waiting for Christ to return, they seem to believe he would return soon. While they are waiting, some of their loved ones, members in the church, are dying. What about them? Are they going to miss out on the day of, God's, of Christ's glorious return? Will they perhaps even miss out on glorified bodies altogether? We know what happens to bodies in the grave. The disintegration. We know what the worm does. Will they miss out on the triumph of the Lamb? I believe Paul in this passage is saying they're not lost. They won't miss out when Christ comes. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 14 Verse 15, we who are alive will not precede those fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. When Paul says the dead in Christ will rise, he means their bodies. He means out of the grave they will be raised physically just as Christ was raised. It is the culmination of their salvation, their glorification in Him. And so verse 17, he has the hope, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So those who are alive at that time will then receive that same glorification. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking about these glorified bodies. And he says in verses 51 to 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That is what we look forward to, the great and glorious final day of our Lord's victory over death. Remember his resurrection, Paul says, is the first fruits of what is to come. It's the down payment, the promise, the guarantee. This is what we look forward to. That day when the perishable gives way to the imperishable. In other words, these bodies, these earthly tents, these bodies prone to sickness and sorrow and, and disease and death, when they give way to something else, not prone to those same things, something glorious, Paul says, verse 54 and 55, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? 
Now there is a, a different kind of confusion today, a confusion that exists in the church related to the question, so where is my loved one right now? Where are they right now? Some take Paul's words, those who have fallen asleep, to mean that upon death, the soul enters the state of sleep, a state of unconsciousness until that future day of the Lord where we will be glorified in Him. This is not what Paul means when he, when he says the dead will rise. It doesn't mean that they've been sleeping the entire time. He says in this passage that he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Soul will be united to body in the resurrection of the dead. Now, other passages make it clear that when we die, we are consciously with the Lord. I mentioned Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is speaking of his own confidence. And he says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. When I die, I will be with Christ. Enlisting his trials in 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Away from the body, present with the Lord. In Luke 23, one of the thieves on the cross comes to repentance and faith, and he says to Jesus on the cross, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Christ responds, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In Luke 16, Jesus is telling the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, one righteous, the other wicked. When they both die and, and the wicked man goes to conscious torment and, the, the, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom to paradise. And we see in this parable, the wicked man asking, can Lazarus not come over and, and comfort me, relieve my suffering a little bit? And he's concerned because he, he wants to send a, a message of warning to his five brothers and cannot do so. Now, even though this is a parable, surely Jesus would be misleading if, in fact, the soul entered a state of sleep after death. No, to die in Christ is to be with the Lord in his presence. So why does Paul use the language fallen asleep? Doesn't refer to soul sleep, it's a way of giving comfort. Paul is saying to the Christians something about death when he says sleep. We are to be encouraged. When the New Testament refers to the death of Christians time and time again as sleep, it's to highlight the lightness of it, how it's temporary, its sting, its victory is gone, it has been tamed. Death has been tamed by the death and resurrection of Christ. I've been fortunate this year to have been able to go to the Camberg three different times, one for elders retreat and a young adults retreat and now recently a, a little holiday. And when you're traveling to the Camberg, you, you pass this bed and breakfast um, called 40 Winks. And for some reason, every time I pass, I say out loud in an Irish accent, Farty Winks, and Sh <laughs> Sheree just rolls her eyes at me. But that phrase, to catch 40 winks, is what Paul is saying. It sums up what he's saying. It means take a short nap. Get a little shut eye. This is how Paul is speaking of our death. Psalm 121 verse 7 declares, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. That's not 
only true in life, it's true also in death. For in verse 8, the psalmist adds, from this time forth and forevermore, death is not something for the Christian to fear. How are we kept from this evil? Paul says in this passage, it is through Jesus. Look at this contrast in verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Death for Christ, sleep for us. Leon Morris comments, he says, It is significant that he does not speak of Jesus as sleeping, but says he died. Christ endured the full horror of that death that is the wages of sin and thus transformed death for his followers into sleep. Without Christ, death is the enemy that no man can defeat, but in Christ, death has lost all its terrors and is no more than sleep. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, that he experienced death for us. Slain by death, the God of life, as we sing here. And in his death and resurrection, he conquered it. That enemy, that ancient enemy so strong is nothing to him. It's nothing to him. We have an unshakable hope that on that day, at the voice of the archangel to repeat his call, the cry of his command and the trumpet blast, it will be for those who have died in Christ like it was for Lazarus on that day when Christ walked up to his tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And he obeyed. The dead will obey, bodies and souls reunited, and the living will be changed in an instant. And we will be fit forever in our glorified state to enjoy the presence of Christ, unhindered by sin unhindered by shame or the possibility of those things. This is the hope for us, and it's the hope that we have for those who we have lost, who belong to the Lord. Now, I know that some of those we have lost perhaps have not belonged to the Lord. Number two, the hope for those who lose an unbelieving loved one. In 1899, two prominent men died. The one was Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll, a brilliant, brilliant man. The Harvard University Ingersoll lectures of, uh, on Im- immortality are named for him. He gave his brilliant mind to the refuting of Christianity, for he was an agnostic. In 1899, he died suddenly, leaving behind his family Unprepared and devastated at his loss, his wife was so grief-stricken that she refused to give up his body until the health of their family necessitated the removal of his body. The funeral was such a scene of dismay that even newspapers at the time commented on it. The second man who died that year was Dwight L. Moody, the great Christian evangelist. His health had been declining for a while, and his family was gathered around his deathbed. His son heard him saying, Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. He was also heard right at the end to say, Is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. 
By now his daughter had come and she was praying for his recovery. And Moody said to her, no, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. Moody's funeral was a scene of triumph and of joy. It was sung at his funeral, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And Paul makes a very clear distinction in this passage. There is a prevailing hope for the believer who dies and no hope for the death of an unbeliever. Verse 13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Scripture is clear about this distinction between brothers and sisters in Christ and the rest of men. There is a narrow way that leads to life and there is a broad way that leads to destruction and there is no middle way. The Bible is clear. We are either in Christ or like the rest of mankind, Paul says, without hope and without God in the world. So this verse, this passage shatters the notions of universalism that so many like to teach. But I know that there are many here today who are praying fervently for a loved one. You're praying that it would not be their fate, that they would die apart from Christ and that they would spend eternity apart from Him. And we don't always know what happens in the 11th hour. There is hope that God can save even then in a moment, in an instant, He can grant repentance. But what do we do when we lose people, we grieve over lost loved ones, and there's no evidence of that salvation to encourage? I want to be very careful because there are truths that are important truths, but spoken at the wrong time can be difficult to hear. And nevertheless, I want to help those who are hurting with this. What comfort does Christ's coming have in these tragic situations? There is one truth that we cling to no matter who we lose. In fact, no matter what we are going through, there is one truth that is never not true in our lives. And that is everything that he does is good. Everything that he does is good. Everything he plans will be for good. And the hope of this passage is of a savior, savior who is coming to set things to right. He's coming to restore, redeem, and recreate. And we are promised that for the church, that will be a day of rejoicing. There will be joy on that day. Revelation 19 verse 7, Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. The world that Christ comes to form will be devoid of pain, shame, fear, and sorrow. His justice and His reign and His goodness will shine, and in the light of His eternal presence, we will not for one minute, minute say of anything that He has ever done it was not right or good or true. There are things that we cannot comprehend now. I pray earnestly for my children, and I'll be honest with you, it is something that leads to the most 
doubts in my heart when I see Christian people and they go through this pain of having unbelieving children. I tremble at the thought of my children growing up and rejecting the Lamb. I, I can't comprehend that reality. But we are promised something at the, the return of our Lord. 1 John 3 verse 2 gives this comfort. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In a moment, we will be changed by sight. We will see him like he is, and we will see things his way. We will look at him on that day, and there will not be a shadow of doubt about how just and how true and how good he is. For today, all we can say, Genesis 18.25, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Maybe you live with a kind of regret. Maybe you've lost somebody who didn't know Christ and you say constantly to yourself, I don't think I did enough. I didn't reach out enough. I wish that I had done more. It is true and it is right to feel a sense of urgency and to pray for the lost more than we do now, brothers and sisters. We need more urgency. We see this attitude in Paul in, in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, he's speaking of the unbelieving Jews. He expresses anguish for them. In chapter 10, verse 1, he prays for them. But between those Two verses, Romans 9, 2 and Romans 10, verse 1. There's Romans 9, 16 that says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If you are struggling with guilt about this, you are able today to put the burden of that guilt, the burden of your loved ones on the broad shoulders of Christ, on the broad shoulders of God. Don't carry that by yourself, but trust that he knows what is best and that he is doing what is right. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, Paul says this as well, also about his trials. He says, we are, this is his state, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, meaning there's this dual experience that the Christian has. And that for this life, while you are striving for joy and clinging to hope, it is okay to be sorrowful. There are some sorrows that will stay with you the rest of your life. And that is all right. Because when you see him face to face, you will be changed in a moment. And sorrow will give way to joy. Number three, in closing finally. The hope for today for those left behind. When my dad died, I felt the full force of the comfort of the truth, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And I look forward to that day when I'm together with my dad, meeting the Lord in the air. But what has often been a big struggle for me has not been a sense of hopelessness for him, but a struggle of hopelessness for family left behind. What is our hope for today, the bitter edge of loss that colors the day today? What hope for us? The Thessalonians see needed correction about their belief, their understanding of the state of their lost loved ones. They were fearful that their loved ones would somehow miss out on the goodness of the Lord. 
Our hopelessness often at times is for the living. It is a different fear, but similar. Is God's goodness enough for those left behind? Is God's goodness enough still in the land of the living? But there is an opportunity that comes with our grief. A grand opportunity that I believe exists in no other place. An opportunity to have our hearts driven again to the goodness of God. When you are grieving, there is one thing that has power to give comfort. Only one thing, and that is the goodness of God. In the midst of grief, many things of life lose their brightness and, and grow dim. When you lose someone, that loss, it colors all of life for a time. Family life and hobbies and home and holidays and future. And the way to fight for joy and for peace and for hope in those times is not by avoiding the grief, but by allowing grief to do its work in your life. Allowing grief to be a reminder of what cannot be lost, what can never be lost. When things once certain become uncertain and you feel that heavy hand of God, the hand that once had given, now taking away, grief gives you an opportunity to be drawn to the goodness of God and to allow that same hand to wrap its fingers around your heart. You have a chance to remember in your grief, especially in your grief, what is sweeter than life itself. Christ is good. Grief shatters and it spins our lives out of control. But for the Christian, that powerlessness sends us to the one who holds all things in his hands. So the message for you, if you are struggling with hope for the here and now, is whether you fall asleep or you are left behind to pick up the pieces after somebody has left you, you will in no way be deprived of the goodness of God. You are in no way outside of His power, the power of His hand, and the working of His grace. And there is a goal that God is accomplishing in all of us, a goal that will not be thwarted. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And for today, you are not left as an orphan. He is here for you in your grief. The other day, I was feeling what has been a regular feeling for me since my dad passed, a mix of anxiety and fear, sadness and, and sorrow, my sense of control is completely shattered. That's what grief does in your life. It shatters your, your sense that you have things under control. And Noah came and he, he sat next to me and there's been this song that's been stuck in his head for weeks now. <laughs> and he started singing this song, a children's song by City of Light. And it reminded me of what we have right now. Not just hope for the future, but hope right now. Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. Jesus said if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross, he will come to me.
For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. There is nothing like grief that calls us back to a simple childlike faith in the goodness of God. So in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing together about that goodness, about the hope that we have. But let's pray. Jesus, our hearts so often wander from the hope that we have in you. We look forward to a day when we will meet you face to face, whether in death or through your return. We look forward to a day of glory and of victory, a day where all our enemies are vanquished. And we thank you, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to have that hope set more firmly in our hearts. God, in our our times of wondering, in our times of doubting, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are close to us even when we question, even when we are hurting. We thank you that you are good in everything that you do. Together as your people, we declare again, And we are uplifted by the truth that there is nothing that you ever do that is not good. There's nothing that you ever will do that is not good. We thank you for that. And we love you. We look forward to seeing you. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.